your first time here, welcome. We're glad that you're here. I hope that you feel welcome. And uh, this morning we're continuing our series on Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn there now. Philippians chapter 1. What a great time we've had already. Our desire is to connect people to Jesus for life change. So we make a big deal about Jesus. And I hope that you hear about him often this morning and see him and his ways in the way of the people that call this their home church. Let me pray and ask God to instruct us this morning. Lord, for your word, we're grateful. And as we open up your word, we present ourselves before you. And God, we ask that you would instruct us and teach us, correct us. Lord, would you meet with us in a powerful way? Would you inform us? Would you inform our faith and sanctify us through the washing of the word? And uh, we just pray these things expectantly because we know that you love to come through in such requests. And so we, we bring these things before you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they could stir up some trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. Yes, And I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that, now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This morning we continue this series in Philippians. And last week we were taught and encouraged to be reminded that this whole letter is about joy. It's written from the Apostle Paul to a church that he helped plant 10 years previous to this letter. So he's writing to brand new Christians. He's writing from prison and he's waiting trial before Nero to see if this Jesus stuff is just a sect of Judaism or if it's legitimate, if it's someone that's just trying to have a Messiah complex and try to draw attention to himself. And so Paul is waiting and we know from history that this waiting and this And this prison, which is like home arrest, house arrest, is between one to two years. And yet the theme of the letter is joy. We saw it twice or three times in our own um, uh, text right here. We see it in verse 3 from last week and then twice um, in verse 18. Rejoice, I will rejoice. And Paul's joy is firmly established and rooted in Christ. So he's writing from prison and as Jed had encouraged us in this worship time together, what's wrong with this guy? How could he have such a perspective? And the reason is, is because his joy is on Christ. See, Paul used to be someone that used to persecute the church. He used to go and arrest people and throw families into prison. In fact, he even encouraged the murder of people that would proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then in time, he had this encounter. He was connected to Jesus. Jesus confronted him and said, why are you persecuting me? And his world turned upside down. And from that moment on, when he recognized what Christ had afforded to him through Christ's death, ministry, and resurrection, Paul then was yielded to Christ and wanted everyone around him and people he'd never met yet to know the name and the saving work of Jesus Christ. 
That was his mission. And now he's in prison for it. And yet he's writing to these new believers, trying to encourage them in the way of joy. His joy then is related to Christ and then how also, or additionally, how God is working through the gospel message, how it's advancing. And so what happens is that we see Paul's joy kind of leads or bleeds them to courage, just courageously sharing over and over again. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. If you're someone that likes titles for messages, you could title this, um, The Connection Between Joy and Courage. Now there's lots of kinds of courage, aren't there? Forms and degrees. When you think of courage, what comes to your mind? I, I think of Several. Now, I've never faced the kind of suffering that Paul is facing, which some people are faced here in our text, which some people still face today. And maybe in time, in our area, it will be, be so. My first effort and endeavor and courage was when I was in third grade asking Amy Knapp to be my girlfriend. And she said yes! You know, I think a round of applause is appropriate. Thank you. In fact, I don't think we've ever broke up, so I should tell my wife that we're, I'm still going with Amy. We never went anywhere, and we, that was an agreement not to talk anymore, but we are... We are serious. That was my best form. I've been somewhat in a bubble. Uh, me going to driver's training was a form of courage for others. I still hate it. I hate cars and everything about them. But when I think of courage at a, at a greater level, I think of the men and women in our church that have served in our, served in our armed forces. That's courage, right? Paul's courage is a unique example. And what we're going to look at today Paul's courage was a boldness then to share the good news of Jesus Christ no matter what might happen. This fearlessness then influenced others as we see in our text. And last week we were reminded, weren't we, that we are all a work in progress. He, God, started a work in you through Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete that work. So the question I have for us this morning, and should be for myself, is this. Is there room for me to grow in courage? If we are a work in progress, if we're being sanctified to conform to the image of Christ for the sake of others and for God's glory, is there room to grow in courage to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter what happens? The answer is yes. I have this question. What holds you back? What holds you back from sharing the gospel with others? If you believe this good news and it's been good news for you and you think it's eternity-saving good news, how much would you have to hate someone to not tell them? What holds you back? So the overarching thought this morning, and I want you to test it throughout the next several weeks or for the rest of your life, if you will, is thinking about this connection. Joy is to courage what hopelessness is to fear. And I think this text gives us that principle. But more importantly than the principle is just this text points us to Christ. Joy is to courage what hopelessness is to fear. Paul's courage is a very specific kind of courage that's actually fundamental for every believer. Let's look at the text again, and we'll go section by section, unpacking such a thought. Verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. I love this, the pastoral nature of this letter. He's the one that's suffering in prison, and yet he's being mindful to encourage and bless the Philippian believers. He just wants them to know. I just want you to know. I just want you to be encouraged about a couple things. And it's not, hey, the food's okay here in prison, or it's not too rough in here. It's two things. It's actually the same thing. I want you to know that the gospel is advancing. It's really happening. It's, it's still happening, is what he's telling them. 
So he wants them to know that the gospel is then advancing, to be encouraged by this in two ways. One, he says this, the whole palace guard knows that he's here for Christ. Your translation might say the imperial guard. Everyone here, the upper echelon prison keepers, they know that I'm here for Jesus. They know, what he's saying is they know that, that he's here with the gospel. Paul is a Roman citizen, and so he's waiting to have his case heard before Nero. You might have heard that name before. It's uh, not a good match for believers. And history tells us that Paul would have been in the system of waiting in this house arrest for one to two years, and that the guards would change once every six hours, meaning then Paul could witness <laughs> to four soldiers each day. Do you think he did? Well, the text tells us, and he's encouraging these young believers in Philippi, I want you to know that everyone here in the imperial garden hall, who they know, they know that I'm here for Christ. They know the name of Jesus. When you've been on a plane, do you always dread who you're going to sit next to? Because you're stuck, man. If you don't worry about it, then you're probably the person that people are worried about. Okay. The person, I remember um, I was flying, uh, when my wife and I were flying to receive our son, Titus in Russia, sitting next to one person in his arms, his muscles were just crazy because he's from Russia, man. And I remember thinking I was sitting in the middle, a man was sitting next to the window and he was sitting next to me and this guy took both arm rests and I feel like everyone should know you're supposed to share it. What am I going to do, tell this guy? You know, he's just going to tell me he's going to break me. It was a long trip. Think about Paul's style then. He's sitting down. The guard changes. Here comes it. Oh, it's a new one. It's interesting. It's day 17. He's not met this one yet. This guy comes in. What's your name? I'm Maximus. Paul, I already know about you. Hi, yeah, I am, Paul. Um, hey, I need to ask you a question. Can I tell you my story about how Jesus changed my life? Four hours later. Hey, I'll see you. Six hours later. I'll see you next time. Send in justice. Okay, yeah. Octavius, hey, good to see you again. Don't forget that assignment I, I put on you. Continuously sharing the gospel. He's trying to encourage these Philippian New believers, I want you to know that even though I'm here, the gospel's still going. What an attitude. His chains then became a way to advance the gospel. And it also did a, had another effect. The gospel advanced because of the second thing he said, which he said, Christians or brothers, and that phrase is um, supposed to be like those that are in Christ, men and women in Christ, are becoming more courageous, more fearless in sharing the gospel. It spurred on a confidence that in other people. So Paul being in prison has an effect, the gospel has an effect to everyone that's at the prison, and then believers around the regions, to all the churches he helped plant, these people are becoming more emboldened to share their faith. His chains became a way to advance the gospel. An act takes courage when it will be painful. Physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally. And if you're anti-pain like me, then courage is going to be tough for you, right? I'm against pain. That's my campaign. Anti-pain. Very different than Jesus, isn't it? So when I preach this message or prepare the message, the message is for me. Joy is to courage what hopelessness is to fear. Christ-honoring courage, then, is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of the cost. That's also a good definition for integrity. Doing what is right no matter what the cost. So to live as Christ instructed, then, requires courage. Why? Because Jesus promised that there would be um, resistance. Did you know that? It's not a promise that people like to claim. That everyone wants to go to heaven, but not everyone wants the trouble. In fact, Jesus says this, In this life you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. If you've got me, then you've got the one. You've got victory. 
In Matthew chapter 24, upon, just before his betrayal from a dear friend, he has a couple friends with him, and he asks them to pray, then he's going to go off and pray by himself. Maybe you've read these texts before. He comes back, and they're sleeping. They're just too sleepy. He asks them to pray, and he says, he promises them that there's going to be trial and tribulation. He asks them to pray, and they're just too weak to do it. Heavy times are upon them. In Matthew chapter 24, he promises trials, tribulation, hatred, death. And then Paul teaches the same thing to a young pastor in Timothy when he says, anyone that wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Not a promise that we love to claim. We want to promise that God's presence will be with us and that he'll be start a work or he'll finish a work that he started. But what about the promise of persecution? And believers today are suffering. Maybe you know this. Maybe you see the news or you're connected with the ministries that reach out to people that are in persecution. We know that pastors in Iran are being imprisoned. We know that people of faith in Christ are in prison in Pakistan. It's just global. And it's been that way since Christ commissioned disciples to share the good news. Good news with people because of love. However, persecution that seeks to stomp out the good news message only spreads it. It's been that way since the beginning. When there was persecution in Jerusalem, what happens is the believers leave Jerusalem and now it's spread everywhere. And somehow someone told you the gospel. How do they have the courage to tell you? How do they love you enough to tell you the truth and not worry about themselves so much? Anywhere where there's persecution, the gospel advances. The Sudan, the same. Everywhere but loving others enough to share the gospel for the glory of Christ is going to take courage. Joy is to courage. Well, hopelessness is to fear. So the question to ask as good Bible students is, where does this kind of courage come from? The answer is that it comes from trusting in God and taking him at his word, from his presence, um, from being filled by his spirit, through prayer, through the prayer of other believers, the scripture tells us, and from the testimony of believers who willingly and courageously and joyfully suffered. So do we want this courage? Is there room? Is there room? If you're a work in progress, which you are, is there room for you to grow in courage? Joy is to courage what hopelessness is to fear. In our text, why were the believers growing in courage? The scriptures tell us. Look at verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Why were the believers being encouraged and more fearless? The answer is because of Paul's chains. Because of his suffering, all their people became more bold. Paul's own imprisonment encouraged others to not fear their potential imprisonment. The thing that he used to do to others is now being done to him. And from that, people are somehow saying, I'd kind of all joy to suffer such. What's wrong with them? (laughs) Isn't it interesting that chains are meant to restrain and hold back? I remember growing up in church and at nighttime church, in, in the Midwest where I'm from, the nighttime service is the JV service where you could like wear jeans. It was incredible. And they do different things like the youth group could speak. It's not a real service, but it's kind of a service. That's why it doesn't have to can be dressed down. Anyone grow up with that heritage? And one time they brought in this team of really strong people. And I remember one guy had handcuffs and they would share about like the strength of the Lord and some kind of teaching. I don't remember it. But it was awesome to watch him break these handcuffs, you know. Should have listened to the message. Chains are meant to restrain, hold back, and Paul's chains are meant to hold back this Jesus stuff. To hold it down until a trial was had. But Paul's chains then are serving to advance the gospel. If I was in Paul's spot, I'd be thinking this. This is it. This is the end for me. 
I'd be completely hopeless. Hopelessness is when you perceive your goal to be impossible. It's blocked. And it usually then flows then to fear. What's going to happen to me next? That's what I would be like. I think there's room for me to grow in courage. I would think this is it. Jesus, please come and get me. My letter to you wouldn't be all this stuff about how God's awesome. It'd be like this, help me! And yet Paul is writing, sharing with those around him. Others start sharing because of it. And today, you and I are being taught from God's spirit by this letter that he wrote so long ago. A real place from real people that experienced the work of a real God. Chains couldn't stop the gospel. I don't know if in your or my lifetime, if we will experience imprisonment. It's possible. Because it's already happening in our world. For those that want to boldly proclaim that Jesus is the way, and right now the pressure comes from just different things by saying God's word is true or uh, things about relationships. If you say those things are true about God's view of different things, what happens is they want to stifle that message, control. But as believers band together to proclaim the gospel truth, the gospel itself is offensive. It's telling people they're going the wrong way. It's possible. So I don't know if you'll experience that kind of suffering. But stepping back and peeling back just a little bit and thinking about this idea of chains, what are your chains? What are the things that you've been told or you think yourself should, with, should hold back the gospel? Marriage is bad. Your kids are wayward. You've got disabilities. You can't speak very well. What would you claim are your chains? You did really bad things in the past, so that means that you can't proclaim the good news in the future. That's a garbage. What would you say are the chains in your life that you think or others would put on you should hold back the gospel. It's a lie. So here's a pithy thing, but I want you to think about it. Are you ready? Your chains are your chance. You've messed up in the past, that's your chance. Brag all the more about God's forgiveness and grace so that others might be saved. Your setback then becomes your setup. This doesn't sound like me. Your setback becomes your setup and your test then becomes your testimony. But what the accuser wants to do, or sometimes our own flesh, wants to say, no, I don't have much to offer. Garbage. You're breathing in and out. If you're in Christ, then good works have been prepared for you from the beginning of time to do. And when you're done with those good works, God says it's time to go home. Well done, good and faithful servant. But it's going to take courage to step out, to be about those things, to use your voice, to use your life, and even use your chains, the things that people would say would make you ineligible for the glory of God. And for the sake of others around you, what are your chains? Your chains are your chance. Joy is to courage. Well, hopelessness is to fear. Look at the next section. Quite interesting. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So these embolden, these encourage people because Paul's in prison. All these people rise up, but now there's different distinctions between the people that are rising up and sharing the gospel. Some spread the gospel in love and goodwill. Awesome. Sadly, others did so with motives of rivalry and envy and selfish ambition. That word selfish ambition means um, to work for self. But Paul would say that he's a workman for the Lord, an approved workman who's not ashamed. Very different, isn't it? They are preaching the same gospel and the same Jesus, but the difference is their motive. Some preached insincerely, trying to make them the situation for worse, Paul says. You might wonder, well, how did they do that? How can they make prison worse? 
Scholars tell us that what they were doing is they were telling other people and new believers and those that had not converted to Christ yet that the reason why Paul's in prison is because God was punishing him. And there is punishment for sin, but that kind of teaching was wrong in this context. That's not why Paul's there. Paul's there because he's defending the gospel. That kind of teaching still exists today. The reason why the bad thing's happening is because you've done something bad. Sometimes, not every time. So they're trying to make life worse for Paul. While he's in prison, believers. Believers would never do that today, right? Try to make something worse for other believers. Not here, no. Still others would preach only to Jews because of their heritage. They want to keep that connection and keep their team going to the exclusion then of Gentiles. So then they were denying the gospel's effects to all people that are breathing. Causing division, then that's the idea of rivalry. The word rivalry here in the King James, you might read from the King James still, the word there is contention. And what that word means is to canvas for office. Hmm. Some preach to get people to follow them, and some preach to see others follow Christ. Isn't that true? The way that would look is beginning with, instead of asking someone, do you know Christ? It'd begin with, what church do you go to? It's like asking Whose team are you on? So the answer would be, well, I love Paul. I love Apollos. John the Baptist is my guy. JD is my person. Johnny's my person. Pastor Davies is my person. To Pastor Horner is my person. That's like the idea of rivalry. Who can have the biggest gathering? Because that person then is winning. That's what these kind of selfish, selfish ambition kind of preachers would do. And I praise God that all those names I just mentioned, by faith, I believe they just want people to know Christ. So we pray for them. We love them. They're awesome. But here we see people want to get people to follow them instead of following Christ. So what's Paul's response to all this? It sounds terrible, even more worse than just prison itself. And look at verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false ones or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, what does he do? He rejoices. That's the joy idea. He doesn't rejoice in the motives, but he rejoices that Christ is being preached. If the gospel is being preached, he's saying, then that is a win. So that some might be saved. It's like he's saying this in 2015, whatever. I don't care about the motive. God will figure that out. I just want to pause for a second and say again, Paul is in prison but rejoicing. How is that possible? The answer is because Paul's joy wasn't tied to circumstances or his critics. I've got so much room to grow. His joy was tied to Christ. Imperial guards then couldn't stop or steal that joy. Being mistreated, misrepresented, misunderstood, couldn't stop or steal that joy. His joy was all related to the fact that the gospel is advancing. Does that confront you? It does for me. As you look at your life, I look at my life, does my joy rise and fall based on the pleasures, possessions, or what people think about me? Does my joy rise and fall based on my comfort, my fulfilled expectations? I struggle to have hard talks with Christians. I struggle to confront believers with sin because I'm afraid. And the reason why is because my joy is not rooted in Christ. It's unrooted whatever they think or how the day will go. Cheap peace that everything's okay. And Raleigh doesn't need more of that, do they? Everything's okay. If your joy is tied to those things, to the rise and fall of these things, 
then you're floating on the sea of happenstance. Things are awesome, things are terrible. Things are awesome, things are terrible. But you read someone like Paul saying things are awesome. How can he say that? I consider it pure joy to face this trial. I, I, I'm so grateful that God called me worthy to suffer for him, that I could be whipped 40 times for him several times, that I could be shipwrecked for him, that I could go without food for a time. What's wrong with this guy? His problem is Jesus. He's completely focused and caught up in what Christ has done for him and what has commissioned him to do, the same commission that every disciple here has been given. There's room to grow, isn't there? Room to grow in our joy, room to grow in our courage. So if your life then is committed to the gospel, to making disciples, then your joy is, is tied to that mission, then your joy is, an un- is unending. Like being firmly set upon a rock. That joy has a firm foundation, our Lord God, Jesus Christ, who is working and has promised to do so, as we learned last week, until the end. Your end and the end. Joy is the courage, while hopelessness is to fear. Look at the next section, starting in verse 18, part B. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Why? For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's joy continues then. It's rooted in the fact that the gospel is advancing and his, his joy is on the person of Christ, but also continues and he believes it will continue because of two things. One, the prayerful support of brothers and sisters in Christ, and two, because of the promise of God's presence, the spirit of Christ. Looking at the first one, it was through prayer support. Number one, through prayer support, Paul's joy is sustained, encouraged, fortified. This is community. Biblical community, what church should be, church is about being something, not attending something. We all know this. Biblical community is caring relationships that are guided by biblical truth and grounded in spiritual accountability. That's exactly what Paul has. And these believers are praying for him, not just saying they're praying for him, but praying for him. Self-evaluation here. Who do you have that prays for you? There are people in our church that when they pray, and they pray for your sake, you feel like you're in the throne room of God. That's who I pick. Who do you, who do you have? Moreover, who has you? Who, who would call upon you to help sustain you through prayer? Who thinks that you just might love them enough and love the Lord enough and love the gospel cause enough that you would pray for someone not simply to have a nice day or to have a safe trip, but that they would live courageously and fearlessly for the sake of others, generously giving the gospel. Who prays for you like that? That's biblical community. So through this, Paul's courage is fortified. Secondly, then also then through God's presence. In verse 19, we said that we read that he says that it's also through the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That word help there pictures the idea of a ligament providing support in a physical body. In the King James Version, the word there is um, supply, which we get our English word chorus from. The picture for the people that were receiving this letter, when they hear the word chorus, or our English word chorus, would be the financial backer of a big show, a big production, the person that would pay for everyone's needs. So when we sing a chorus and a song, it's, it's supposed to be lavishly and generously giving of something, giving of words or giving provision. And in this text, it's this, is that God lavishly and generously gives his presence to sustain you in the moment that you step forward because of joy and courage to share the gospel. 
And Paul's saying, his spirit in through your prayer has been enough. I just want you to know. That's what he's saying. I just want you to know. Isn't it true that sometimes we lack courage because we aren't sure or we are uncertain about God's supply of grace, strength, and presence in a time of need? Is, it the re- is one of the reasons why that you're not bold with the gospel is because you aren't sure how God's going to come through? So instead of stepping forward to do that thing, you hold back and then you never get to experience God's goodness. Is it possible that God is such a good, loving, heavenly father that he withholds some of that so you can experience the process of the faith step instead of telling you in the back end of it already how everyone's going to respond around you? Is it possible that that could actually be best? I don't tell my daughter what she's getting for her birthday before she has the birthday. It's to our benefit to have that surprise. I think it's the same for the believer. You are overwhelmed by your joy in the Lord because of what Christ has afforded to you through his life, ministry, death, resurrection. And you want everyone else to know about the goodness of grace and mercy and forgiveness. So then you step forward by courage, not knowing how everyone's going to respond to you, but you proclaim the truth and you live the truth. But you don't know how it's going to go. You could be in prison. It's to your good that you step forward in courage. But we're afraid. And so we don't step forward at all. And then we miss out on seeing the Lord come through at our point of courage. Joy is the courage. What hopelessness is the fear. The reason why I don't step forward is because I actually have a hopelessness. My joy is not in the Lord. My hopelessness is that I have nothing to offer. Or it's gone bad before. It's never going to work. Paul says all this and continues on. He says that his joy is rooted in the gospel going forward and is sustained through the prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit. And he believes that all of this is going to happen for his deliverance. Look at verse 19 again. It's giving him the confidence and courage to say this next phrase. Verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help given to me of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which we just looked at, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Interesting. This word for deliverance means salvation. So Paul optimistically, courageously believes that he's going to be saved. The word here is salvation or deliverance is often used in scripture for physical healing or rescued in danger or eternal salvation. Many think then that Paul, many scholars think that Paul is not talking about being freed from jail, but freed from this life, like being brought into the kingdom of God. But in the next chapter, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, Paul has this confidence that he's going to be again with his readers. So it could be both. Either way, it makes sense why he later then talks about life and death. But until that deliverance, what is he going to do? Verse 20 tells us. He has a confidence that he'll be delivered. That confidence is rooted in joy and then fortifies or informs his courage so that he can continue to be bold all the way till his deliverance. But if he's not delivered, he writes, he says this, verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. His expectation and hope on his conduct has two aspects. So he has a belief that he will be delivered, but until that time, he has two expectations and hopes. One is that this, he won't be ashamed. He'll be unashamed. And two, that he'll have sufficient courage. Let's talk about that shamed one first. To be ashamed is the idea of to, to run from resistance. It's that desire to want to undo an association because of outward pressure. If you remember growing up, for those of the group in the 80s and 90s, to be like kids that want to be dropped off at the mall a block ahead of the mall. Why? 
because they don't want to roll up with their mom and have their kids, friend, their friends waiting for them. And the mom say, I'll pick you up in a little bit, about an hour so we can go to the doctor for that rash. Shut up. <laughs> we, we become those parents that do that, right? We don't care what their friends think. And I'll probably do it on purpose. I don't care. It was done to me, it'll be done to you. Why does the child want to be dropped off a block ahead? And as a sophomore, when they don't have their license yet, but everyone else does, want a mile ahead. They're ashamed. They're ashamed of the connection. Their parents are um, embarrassing them. So to be ashamed of Christ is to want to undo the association. Christ's message of he being the only way to the Father is so embarrassing because how can you be so exclusive? Yeah, you're probably right. Jesus is kind of weird. There's lots of ways. Then you say, that's not what Jesus said. So Paul is saying, as the pressure mounts up, he has an expectation and a hope. He hopes that he'll be unashamed of Christ. Approved workmen are not ashamed. So for one to be ashamed of Christ would be because their joy is not in Christ, wouldn't it then? But on something or someone else, I care more about what you think of me than I do of my Savior. I care more about what you think of me than I do love you. So then we're afraid of the consequences of being associated with Jesus. Joy is to courage what hopelessness is to fear. He says he doesn't want to be ashamed. And secondly, he says this, as I hope and expect that I'll have sufficient courage. So courage and boldness then are not for the elite Christians alone. Our missionaries to Panama, Bill and Judy Grimmy, Matt and Misty Hedspeth, our missionaries to Madagascar, Grant and Jody Waller, our former missionary to Uganda, Julian Nall, Mr. Connor, who sits on the first service and goes door-to-door in apartment complexes around the city sharing the gospel. What's wrong with them? It's not, boldness and courage is not just reserved for those that have climbed the spiritual ladder and now they're ready. It's actually fundamental. It's foundational. It's basics. It's Christian basics. But it comes from having your joy set upon Christ. When you have Christ, what is there to fear? This is why Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, you've got me, and I've overcome the world. We sing songs that actually are from the scriptures. If the Lord is with you, who can be against you? The scriptures tell us that, well, don't fear what people can do to the body. Fear the Lord, what he could do to you after your body's decayed. You know, I would think that speaking boldly is something that Paul just does, wouldn't you? I mean, every time we see him in the book of Acts, he's just blowing out the gospel. And then bad things, as I would say it, bad things seem to happen to him. And it just like invigorates him even more and more and more people are trusting in Christ and he just keeps going. But he often asks people to pray for him that he'd be courageous. Maybe he wasn't so bold in above himself. In fact, we see this just the page before this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. He asked that church that he helped plant to pray for him. Ephesians chapter 16, verse 19 reads, Pray also for me that whatever, whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. That word fearlessly is the same as courage. He's asking other people to continue to pray that he would be courageous enough. Just like we pray for one another. Who do you have praying for you that you'd be courageous and bold enough to share with your family, friends, coworkers, strangers? I wonder what Paul would think about this quote. Have you heard this one? Preach the gospel and at times use words if necessary. Preach the gospel all times, use words if necessary. I believe that would be offensive to him. 
See, I think people use it to justify not courageously sharing the gospel. That quote is often attributed to Francis of Assisi. Here's a little bit of research for you, as a good pastor ought to do, for the body he helps shepherd. It is always attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, founder of the Franciscan order. The truth is Francis never said such a thing. None of his disciples, earlier or later biographers, have, you, have these words coming from his mouth and doesn't show up in any of his writings. The closest comes from his rule of 1221, chapter 12, and how the Franciscans should practice their preaching. He says, all friars should preach by their deeds. What he's saying then is make sure your deeds match your words, which is precisely what the book of James is all about. Mike Galley, senior managing editor at Christianity Today, wrote on Francis, as well as clarifying the myth of the quote, he explains that Francis was quite a preacher. <laughs> Actually, more along the lines of Jonathan Edwards or Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday's Hellfire and Brimstone stuff. So he was more like them than most of those who misquote him would like to think. Galley quotes Thomas's biography. His words were neither hollow nor ridiculous, but filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, penetrating the marrow of the heart, so that listeners returned to great amazement. This is the person that people attribute to the idea of saying, don't use words if you don't have to. Or use words only when you must. This guy, Francis, spent a great deal of time using his words when he preached. In fact, he preached five, to five villages a day some days. In, in the country, Francis often spoke from a, a bale of straw or a granary doorway. In town, he would climb a box or up steps in a public building. He preached to any who gathered to hear. He was sometimes so animated and passionate in his delivery that his feet moved as if he was dancing. But he's been said to have said, always preach the gospel, but use nerd words when necessary. Seems like Francis and Paul would have had the same mind. Paul asked the church at Rome... Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him whom, whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Words are necessary. We adopt Titus in 2012. And I, my chief desire for him and for all my children, all the children right now on Bridge Kids, is that they'd know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But if I feed and care for by the provision of God, which is actually from you, from God, and I never speak or share the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ with my son Titus, then he is not adopted into the family of Jesus. So you could say, well, just share the gospel through your deeds. You know, Jesus says to take care of the poor and all that. Yes, take care of the poor and share the gospel with them. Because if a poor person now becomes rich and they don't know Christ, they're still going to hell. So what have we accomplished? Jesus said, though, that I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. So we're supposed to do those things? Yes, those are huge ways of jumping on points than to share the good news of Jesus Christ, what he's done. I think Paul... Nothing was going to keep him from sharing the gospel until they rid this world of his life. The same for St. Francis of Assisi. What about me? What about you? Our prayer for one another then should be that we would be unashamed and that we'd be courageous with the gospel. And those things will happen then when your joy, my joy, is found in Christ. Why does Paul then expect and hope to be courageous? Look at verse 20. The scriptures tell us. Why does he hope for these things? Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way be ashamed, will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The word exalted then is to make great. The King James uses the word magnified, which means like telescoping, like making something far near. That word literally means to strain one's neck to see what is ahead. And so the idea of what Paul's doing is he wants his life to be one where he himself brings Christ closer to people through how he speaks, lives. How is Christ magnified today? 
when people give their lives to Christ or when Christians speak and act as if Jesus, as Jesus instructed them and through the believer's response to, to suffering. These are all ways that someone gets a better glimpse of Jesus. Your life then becomes the telescope through which someone sees Christ a little clearer. Oh, that seems a lot like, you seem a lot like Jesus. I thought you were Jesus for a second. Wouldn't that be incredible to be accused of? That's why we're called Christians, little Christs, Christ follower. But Paul says something really unique, I think. He says that Christ would be exalted or magnified in my body. So because of Paul's chains and the marks that he bears on his body, Christ was magnified to others through his physical suffering for Christ's sake. He's not suffering for his own sake. He's suffering because he's making much of Jesus. So that means then, if he says that you can glorify or magnify God with your bodies, that means then our physical bodies have gospel value. Here's a couple scriptures that you probably have hidden in your heart. If not, it's to your own discipleship that you know them. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we see that our bodies are a living sacrifice. Can we show that? We don't have that? I'll go there. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The physical body then does a spiritual thing. How are people going to know Christ through how you move and live and have your being? Another scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This was written to a church that had a lot of different issues, like every church does because there's people in them. Worship problems, order of service problems, problems between the different members. But this church had a lot of um, sex issues, a lot of problems with such things. And so as we get toward chapter 6, he's just been talking about such things, and then he writes to these believers, just as many of you are believers, do, not, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. That is not a popular teaching today. I am in charge of my body. The next line says this, verse 20. You were bought at a price. Therefore, since you aren't your own and you're bought at a price, what was the money used to purchase you? Answer, Christ's blood. The word there is redemption. You've been redeemed, purchased, brought into his family through his death and resurrection and by the faith granted you that you've placed in Christ for being the way, truth, and life. You are no longer your own anymore. You belong to him. And for the true believer, they'll be, glor- they'll be joyful to do such. You are not your own. You don't have the right to do what you want with your body. Therefore, honor God with your body. Isn't that interesting that we can magnify God by how we use our bodies? And we can dishonor God by how we misuse our bodies. That is not popular teaching today. So then it's a challenge for us to make Christ known through our body. It's why Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. True, isn't it? I want to quit. I need to grow in courage. And in order to do that, I can investigate Christ and watch my joy swell up, which will then inform my courage. Paul said that he wants Christ to be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. His greatest longing then would be fulfilled in either. Next week, Lord willing, you'll see the next verse, which is probably one of the most famous verses in the text. You know, many believers think about how their life can magnify God, but what about how we die? This is why Paul often talks about perseverance, pursuing, uh, per- persevering to the end, finishing the race, completing the course, fighting the good fight, contending for the faith. It's about living and dying 
for the glory of God, that he would be magnified so that people can see him. Do you think about your death? I think about how I'll die, and I get anxious, and it tempts me to fear, and then which informs a hopelessness. I'm going to die. There was this test I saw online one time. It's called the sit test. And if you can, without touching the floor with your hands, just sit down, nice crisscross applesauce style, if you will, then you have a life expectancy. So it looks something like this. For those in theater 14, I'm probably going to go out of view for a second. Okay? Okay. I used one hand. Now the rest of the test is, what do you have to use to get up off the floor? If you can stand up without touching anything, you're probably going to live a long time. Here's my attempt. So I'll be dying tomorrow. <laughs> Believers, when they think about the Christian life, they think about this living, but they really think about the dying because they think their bodies are their own. Paul doesn't know this yet, but in time, history tells us, because this rest of his story isn't told here, he will die here, and tradition tells us by beheading. He doesn't care. And he looks forward to it. You can do a sit test. You can enter information. You can talk to your doctor. But guess what? The Lord has determined the number of your days. How will you live them? The Lord has determined your death. How will you live until that point for his glory, courageously and filled with joy or not, with hopelessness and fear? For Paul, he looked at death and saw it as an occasion for the fulfillment of his calling that Christ might be magnified because he knew and was convinced of who Jesus Christ was, what he's done, and who he is. Therefore, his joy in Christ informed his courage to be unashamed about the gospel, even unto death. What about you? I hesitate to share, but I will. When I ask the question, what holds you back? Have you ever thought this thought before, the reason why I'm afraid to share is because I don't want to push people I love away. I don't want to push them away. Let me share this thought with you pastorally, and it'll probably come off judgy. They're already away. They're already not in Christ. They're spiritually dead. So they're actually not with you at all. And if you're in Christ and they aren't, you actually have a chasm between you. I encourage you and challenge you. If you want to learn more about courage and living courageously for the gospel, the sake of the gospel, the glory of God, then investigate Christ. Because what happens is you get to know Jesus and what he's done for you and his affection toward you is that your joy will swell up and that always flows to courageousness. And what will happen is that this joy will flow and then you start loving other people because he, like how he loves, and then you won't worry about pushing them away. The gospel is offensive. It's telling people they're going the wrong way. It's not saying that you're smarter than them. And you can share the gospel and be a jerk. The problem is that you're a jerk, maybe, not your words. Don't be a jerk. Big tips. Lovingly share the gospel because you love, because you're loved. You want courage? Investigate Christ. Not to learn tips about courage, because as you learn about him, he'll inform your joy, and your joy will function and flow to courageousness. And be with believers. Call upon believers to pray with you. Pray for other believers. So you might not live ashamed, but you would live with sufficient courage. That's the word for today. That's the message for today. Is that what you expect when you come to church? I want more than attending something. I want us to be something. Being church for the sake of our city. Encouraging believers to go to any gathering that proclaims the gospel. I don't care what team they're on. If they're preaching Christ, then it's a win. I just want you to reach people. For Christ and to do it joyfully 
in great love and patience, trusting in the Lord to torque a heart, not your clever words, but boldly using your words to demonstrate the reason for the hope that you have in Christ, loved ones. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love for us. Father, we ask, God, that you would use this word, use your message to inform our joy, to build courage within us, to remind us of the hope we have in you and that we would love others enough to share the gospel with them. Thank you for your servant, Paul. We don't praise him. We praise you. And I'm sure he'd be embarrassed to have us talk about him so much. So we praise you, Father, for what you've done and what you're doing and what you're going to do. And we pray these things and we bring ourselves, our church family, before you, Lord God, and ask that you would use us in a way that you see fit for the betterment of our city, our world. Lord, help us send more missionaries out than we ever have. Help raise up people from in this body, Lord, to plant churches to reach people, to reach their neighbors and family and friends, to reach this world, connecting people to you for life change. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.